From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, a President's Day special, a history of the White House kitchen through the eyes of black chefs who became trusted advisors, like Zephyr Wright for Lyndon Johnson. She was a family confidant. Johnson would use her Jim Crow experiences to lobby for the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Plus, the founding fathers in sickness and in health, but mostly sickness. It's amazing that America and the United States eventually thrived and that anyone survived those early years. Then, the evolving role of first ladies. I believe that they really felt their job was to burnish the reputations of their husbands. I think many of them acted as kind of informal PR agents. And for Black History Month, a plea to the babies, now adults, delivered by the first African-American female doctor in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's President's Day, which happens to fall during Black History Month. And for much of U.S. history, African-Americans have cooked for presidents and run their households. Denver food writer Adrian Miller identified at least 150 black culinary professionals who served the nation's chief executives and their families. Some were forced to. Some became so trusted they were asked for political advice. Miller's book is called The President's Kitchen Cabinet. One personality I think really stands out in this book, Zephyr Wright. Tell us about Zephyr Wright. Well, Zephyr Wright, of all the cooks that I identified, if I could just meet one and sit down and have a meal, she's the one. So she was the private cook for Lyndon Johnson, and she cooked for the Johnsons before he actually became a politician. And um, a lot of people credit her food to helping his rise in politics because he, you know, the nature of things was to entertain and get to know people at, and bring them over to your house. And so they, she would make these wonderful Southern dinners and was well known for the food that she created. But she encapsulates a lot of the themes of my books because she was a culinary artist, well celebrated. She was a family confidant. When uh, Johnson was inaugurated, she sat in the inauguration box with the family. And then um, she was like a civil rights advocate because Johnson would use her Jim Crow experiences to lobby for the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Experiences like what? Well, the family would drive back and forth from Texas to Washington, D.C. And when she went along with the family, she couldn't go to the bathroom with them at the same time. She could not eat with them in the same places. It got so bad that she finally refused to make the trip. And so Johnson would say uh, to members of Congress, it's a shame that the president's cook has to experience this. So obviously, after the assassination of President Kennedy, she, as Johnson did, rose uh, to prominence in the White House. Yes, yes. But there was a holdover chef from the Kennedy administration, a French chef named René Verdon. Now, he was making French food, which LBJ and the Johnsons weren't feeling. So they would ask him to make Tex-Mex <laughs> and Southern food. And he would call chili con queso, you know, that cheese. He would call that chili concrete. And so they would ask him to make, you know, nachos and other things. And when he would mess it up, they'd say, oh, go talk to Zephyr and have her teach you how to do it. It got so bad that Verdon finally quit. I see. Yeah. Boy, that, that is a symbol of the difference between the Kennedy and the Johnson administrations, if there, if there was one. Yeah. Are there other White House servants, and by that I mean cooks and stewards, that's another position, who became politically active that way in, in their advice? Yeah, one of the most remarkable stories is a woman named Lizzie McDuffie. Uh, now, she was actually a maid, but she would help out with food, especially when President Roosevelt would travel. That's who she worked for, President Franklin Roosevelt. In the 1936 election, she actually went on the stump and uh, stumped for him in cities with a large African-American population. 
And so she was so successful. She went to about eight cities that after he won that 1936 election, Roosevelt invites her to the Oval Office and personally thanks her. Now, the Hatch Act existed at that time, which forbid, you know, forbade um, White House employees from you know, campaigning and things like that. But she never got pressed on it. I see. And one way that uh, servants in the White House wind up helping politically is if there is a state dinner or something like that on short notice, right? So where food becomes something of an, of an elixir of diplomacy, they have to act. Right. I think of, of that, I think in the Johnson administration in which he would call dinners at the last minute. Right. And here we get Zephyr Wright again, and we just see the genius of Zephyr Wright. So if he would show up at the last minute with a large party and uh-huh. demand a dinner, what she would do is she would just start sending out a bunch of liquor. So people wouldn't think about the food, and then she would serve up whatever was needed. That bought her some time, and it kept people entertained. And no one complained, believe it or not. Why the focus on African Americans in particular? Give us some context into the role they have played over time. Yeah. Well, I think it's simply because African Americans have dominated um, the cooking positions in the White House uh, uh-huh. throughout history. And I've identified 150 people, as you noticed, and I know I'm just scratching the surface. And they've um, played a lot of different roles. And over time, they have mirrored the status of African Americans in the broader society. A lot of our presidents were slaveholders. So we had a lot of enslaved cooks in the White House. And then we see people as free laborers engaging in White House cooking. Now, at that time, for much of the 18th and 19th century, cooking and servitude were pretty much the only jobs that African-Americans could enter into without getting a lot of white backlash. Mm. And so a lot of people chose that profession and excelled at it. So it's a microcosm in many ways of what's happening nationally. And we really should talk about the nation's first president, George Washington, who had several African-Americans in service. And one of them named Francis, was a steward and ran the household, managing the budget, ordering the food, supervising other employees. Another was a cook named Hercules, and both were Washington's slaves. Well, Francis was a free man, actually. So ah. Francis was a biracial man born in Haiti who immigrants, uh, immigrates to New York probably in the 1750s, runs a business and a one place called Francis Tavern, which a replica exists to this day. So Washington would come over and grub at his place, and he loved his food so much that when he became president, he said, I want you to manage my kitchen. I see. And Hercules was brought from Mount Vernon to run the uh, residence in Philadelphia. Uh, the residence was there before the White House was actually constructed. Right. The interesting thing about that is Philad- uh, Pennsylvania had a law that said any enslaved person who was on Pennsylvania soil for more than six months was automatically free. So the way that Washington got around that is just about the time the six-month deadline would toll, he would pack up all of his enslaved people, send them back to Mount Vernon, have them stay there for a few weeks, and then bring them back to start the clock. Anew. Resetting the clock. Yeah. And that was true for this cook named Hercules, who, yes. who was a slave. Yes. What did that make you think of George Washington? Did it change your impression of him? Uh, well, no, I was fairly, fairly um, um, well-versed in his history uh-huh. with enslaved people. So it just reinforced the things that I knew. And I know it's a complicated situation, but uh, I just like, man, that's kind of messed up. Yeah. To do that? To send him out of state to reset the calendar. Yeah. Any sense of who Hercules was? Yeah. So we know that he was a very temperamental chef. He probably would fit in well in a lot of the cooking shows we see on TV today, but um, very accomplished. Um, We know that he was a rather stocky man, kind of a large man, but um, just very good at cooking. And I think later escaped. Yes. On Washington's 65th birthday, he runs away and he's only seen one time after that. And there's a, a portrait of Washington, of, of Hercules uh, sitting in a museum in Spain. 
And the portrait was painted by Gilbert Stewart, the same guy who painted that iconic portrait of George Washington. It says a cook for George Washington. And you look at the clothing in that painting, and it looks like the clothing a chef in Europe would wear at that time, not one in America. So we believe that he just ran overseas. Ran overseas so that he would not be caught, I suppose, by Washington, who I think continued to look for him. Right. Washington spent a lot of time looking for him, and um, he would spare no expense to track him down. Adrian, give us some examples of foods that presidents particularly liked and brought to the White House, and therefore the people had to cook for them. <laughs> right. So um, best example is probably Lyndon Johnson, just the, the Southern and Tex-Mex that he brought. So he loved chili. He loved nachos. By the way, President uh, Obama loved nachos as well and guacamole. Uh, but, you know, a lot of presidents loved French food. So Jefferson definitely had French food served in the White House. So did James Monroe. And Chester Arthur, he was known as a gourmand, uh, and so he had a lot of uh, elegant food. But then Kennedy brought a lot of New England favorites. So usually it's the food of their childhood that they bring with them. Jefferson having an interest in French cooking, I understand, brings essentially a kind of gourmet mac and cheese into the White House. Right. So in the earliest days of mac and cheese in this country, it was really wealthy Americans who would travel to Europe. They got introduced to the dish and they would bring it back. And we know that Jefferson served mac and cheese in the White House because one of the dinner guests wrote about it in his diary. He was a guy named Reverend Manassas Cutler. And he was uh, he really couldn't figure out what mac and cheese was. He thought the pasta were big onions. And so he had to ask the guy next to him, what is this dish? And he explained that it's a pasta dish from Italy. And, da, da, da. and that person was Meriwether Lewis. Ah. Yeah, he was at that dinner. On- onions and cheese, that sounds awful. You mentioned several presidents who had a little trouble pushing themselves back from the table. <laughs> Their wives and staffs actually had to try to keep them on diets. And uh, President Taft, who notoriously weighed about 340 pounds, had a real taste for apple pie. Yes, uh, he loved he loved apples in general, and so when he would travel on the train, there was an African American chef named John Smeeds, and he was well known for his apple pie. But he was on a strict diet, and if the first lady or the White House physician was on the train, it was a no go for the president. But even when they were off the train, the staffers knew he was on a diet, and they knew they would hear it from either the first lady or the White House physician. So they actually formed this secret order of the apple pie. <laughs> in order to get some of John Smead's famous pie, but keep the president away from it. And the president knew what was going on and kind of played along. There is a time, I think, when Taft is on a train journey and there's no dining car attached to his train, to which he objects hugely. Right. So he wanted to get his grub on. And fortunately, the first lady and neither the first lady nor the White House physician were on the train. So he could actually eat what he wanted. Okay. And he wanted some filet mignon. But it was close to midnight. There was no dining car. So he orders the train to stop at a place in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where they can actually add a dining car. And he says, if I'm the president of the United States, I should be able to have a dining car attached to my train. And he gets one. He gets one. They make an unscheduled stop Mm -hmm. and they bring on a dining cart. Mm -hmm. And have to rouse some cook to make that filet mignon. And soon enough, he was eating filet mignon. Right. You muse in the book. Who was that cook that would have been roused out of sleep? We don't know the person's name, but it's likely an African-American. Because at that time period, African-Americans dominated the cooking profession, even on uh, the luxury trains. How would you say food trends at the White House have changed over 200 plus years? Well, in terms of the uh, VIP dining, the state dinners and other things, it's definitely had a French vibe. But as of late, since uh, 
the Clintons, when Hillary Clinton pushed really American regional food, it's really been a mix of high-end kind of celebration of American uh, regional food. But before that, it was pretty much French. There was a short time period from Theodore Roosevelt to Calvin Coolidge where we had these Swedish cooks who were dominating the White House. I don't know what that's about, but that was kind of the break. But it usually was a mix of French and Southern And then we get to more American uh, regional celebrations. Food, specifically beans, caused a big controversy in Lyndon Johnson's administration. Uh, Here's some tape you found from the Johnson Library, where the president's personal secretary, Juanita Roberts, calls the cook, whom we've spoken about earlier, Zephyr Wright. And uh, Roberts questions Wright very closely about what kinds of beans the president likes. So let's listen. Um, Zephyr Wright speaks first. You like pork and beans, you like pinto beans, you like uh, lima beans, green beans. That, that's green limas uh, are dried. Green limas. Green. Mm-hmm. Why did that conversation take place? Well, this is one of my favorite stories in the book. So the White House released a recipe for something called Pertinales River Chili. And that's a river that runs alongside the LBJ Ranch in central Texas. Now, if you know any Texans... Chile in Texas does not have any beans. And so when the White House releases this recipe, people across the country freak out. (laughs) And they want to be reassured that their president loves beans. So this was all just a spin control. And so they had to go to the source, the authoritative source on the subject. That was Zephyr Wright. And it's funny because this is part of all of the... collection or the collection that of the audio tapes that Johnson had in the White House. So the recording system was actually put in under Kennedy. Johnson takes it up a large scale and he actually recommends it to Nixon. And we know how that turned out. Yes, indeed. The doing in of Nixon. I want to play another bite here. So this is where Zephyr Wright describes a recipe we might find a little unusual, unappetizing today. <laughs> and the first voice in this case is uh, Johnson's private secretary, Juanita Roberts. Now, the green llamas, uh, you don't... The baby llamas. Green baby llamas. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you prepare those for him? Just uh, in salty water and cook them and, and add a little uh, oleo margarine uh-huh. and pepper uh-huh. and cook them for a good long while until the juice in them is kind of thick. Yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, you used to use the Velveeta, but you don't do that anymore. Well, I do that uh, for parties. For parties. Uh-huh. uh-huh. We use uh, the Velveeta. Also, uh, mushrooms. You know, you call it uh, lima beans with cheese and mushroom sauce. Oh, that's what you call it. Okay. <laughs> and the Velveeta is for the fancy occasions. That's right. But that's a dish that the beans might be integrated into, lest anyone worry the president doesn't like beans. That's right. We have focused uh, some on drinks, much more on food. Let's go back to drinks for a bit. Uh, what stories did you find about alcohol in the White House and its role? Well, for whatever reason, we just don't like our presidents to drink too much. Yeah. Uh, maybe it has something to do with having the nuclear codes. I don't know. <laughs> so there's been a really uh, serious cat and mouse game in terms of presidents you know, saying that they will have drinks maybe for state dinners and other things, but not drink too much. One of my favorite stories involves uh, the Trumans. So the Trumans would want to have some old fashions before they would have dinner at the White House. So the White House butler, a guy named Alonzo Fields, who was there for a long time, would actually go ask what they want. So they wanted the old fashions. And it's a drink with bourbon, some sugar, water, and, and some bitters. So he made the first one. And Best Truman says, ah, this, could you make it a little drier? This is really too sweet. And he's like, all right. So he makes another version of it. She says, man, this tastes like fruit punch. Well, she didn't say man, but she says it tastes like fruit punch. And so Fields was so frustrated that he just served her straight bourbon. She takes one sip and says, that's how you make an old fashioned. (laughs) You simply serve bourbon. Yeah. Tell us about Arthur Brooks. 
Yeah, Arthur Brooks was an African-American man who was the White House wine cellar steward for a long time. And so he was a very trusted White House employee, and he was there for about 20 years. Uh, And when he dies, just to show the affection that Calvin Coolidge had for him, Calvin Coolidge actually went to his deathbed and showed great concern for him and went to his funeral. Uh, So it just shows you how a lot of times these White House employees became friends with the president. And sometimes multiple presidents, right? Right, Yes. So he worked there from roughly uh, Taft all the way to Coolidge. So a nice uh, span. And he was at the White House before, but took a little break before returning during the Taft administration. It's not just in the White House that food has to be prepared. I think two of Air Force One. Right. You note that there are not friars aboard Air Force One. So there are often these kind of awful, (laughs) unfried French fries. Right. So what they have to do is pre-make things either in the White House mess, which is another cooking space in the White House besides the White House kitchen, or they would pre-make them at Andrews Air Force Base, where uh, Air Force One uh, stays when the president's not flying. And so they kind of finish things on uh, the plane. So a lot of the things are just kind of pre-baked, pre-fried, and then baked further on the plane. And the trade-off for soggy fries is that you don't bring a plane down with a an oil fryer. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that would <laughs> be like tragic. A, a fair trade-off to right. me. Yeah. But the, the White House food has gotten a lot better, especially under the Obama administration. Um, before, people have complained about it, um, but it's quite good now. That is on Air Force One. On Air Force One, mm-hmm. yes. Will President and Mrs. Trump have any say in who cooks in the White House? Absolutely. So the White House executive chef who runs the entire kitchen serves at the pleasure of the president. So right now, Christetta Comerford, uh, who's been there since the second term of George W. Bush, is holding over until President Trump decides what he wants to do. So he may retain her or he uh, may ask for someone else. And sometimes a president will ask for a private chef to come in and cook for just the family. That's what President Obama did with uh, Chef Sam Cass. Before that, the only other president to do that in recent memory was Lyndon Johnson with Zephyr Wright. Otherwise, the White House executive chef has done all the family cooking as well as the cooking for guests. Do African-Americans continue to play a strong role in the White House as they did historically? Yes. So you have three African-Americans, at least on the White House kitchen staff, and you have a lot of African-Americans serving in the White House mess, which is a cooking space that serves mainly the top officials in the administration. And then you have people still serving on Air Force One. So there's still a lot of African-Americans in the mix. Denver food writer Adrian Miller. We spoke in February 2017 about his book, The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African-Americans who have fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. Dr. Justina Ford was the first licensed African-American female doctor in Colorado. It's estimated she delivered more than 7,000 babies during her 50-year career. Now, the Black American West Museum in Denver is searching for former patients and babies she delivered, who are now adults. The idea is to take a big group photo on Thursday. This is as Dr. Ford is honored with a new mural. We learned about her legacy during a campaign last fall to preserve the Black American West Museum, which is also the home where Dr. Ford lived and worked back in the early 1900s. She was quoted to say she delivered a baby on average one every three days for 50 years. So she was packed in a car and driven to their homes to deliver their babies. She also had an examining room here in the home to take care of her patients, and she was always on duty. Right. She didn't do this work at a hospital. She, in fact, turned her dining room into an exam room. 
Why wasn't she at a hospital? She was granted her medical license in 1902, but denied membership to the Colorado Medical Society, and the membership was required to be on staff at the hospitals. And she was finally granted her membership in 1950. Many decades later. She practiced 48 years before she was granted her membership. How much of that had to do with the fact that she was black and a woman? She was told she had two strikes against her, that she was both black and female. She was also challenged with those two strikes when she was applying for her license, but they did grant her license and took her $5. Who were her clients? Were they all African-American? Her clients encompassed everyone in the neighborhood, whether they were European immigrants, Latino, African-American, indigenous people, Asian descent. It seemed that she had a fascination with medical science from childhood. I read that she dissected frogs. Her mom was a nurse. So this exposure came early on. Yeah, she traveled around with her mother to take care of patients as well. Her mother was a nurse and midwife. Do you run into people who were connected in some ways to Dr. Ford? Constantly. We have guests come into the museum that are Ford babies, as we call them. Ford babies. I love it. <laughs> is there a story about Dr. Ford that you think is particularly emblematic of her life? I especially love some of the stories that my grandmother told me about, because my grandmother thought of Dr. Ford as an aunt. What do you remember your grandmother telling you? Seems like asking you this brings up some emotions for you. I really miss my grandmother. My grandmother loved Dr. Ford and had a lot of admiration and respect for her. Just thought she was one of the hardest working people that she had ever encountered. Everyone in our, our community wanted to make sure that they looked after one another. and They took care of one another. And in spite of all the stuff that happened outside of our community, in spite of all the stuff that was done to them, they stood tall. They got up every day to make a difference and make sure that their neighbors' lives were better. Dr. Ford never had children of her own, but she had 7,000 children. Terry Gentry is a volunteer with the Black American West Museum in Denver, which used to be the home of Dr. Justina Ford. The museum wants to hear from Dr. Ford's former patients as a mural is dedicated in her honor. And this special Colorado Matters on President's Day and during Black History Month continues after the break with the defining and changing role of First Lady. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. Addiction, illness, physical impairment, they can hit all of us and the people we love. I'm Vic Vela, your weekend host here on CPR News, and now I'm the host of a new recovery podcast called Back From Broken. I'm a recovering drug addict, and on this podcast, I talk to people who've made their own comebacks. One thing I learned in recovery is that I need to just cut myself some slack. I'm a human being, and I need to embrace that fully. The first episode comes out Friday. Listen to the trailer and subscribe now at backfrombroken.org. In the early days of the Republic, it wasn't clear what the wife of the president should be called. Sometimes it was the Presidentess or Mrs. President. Martha Washington was often referred to as Lady Washington. Like her husband, George, she had to navigate a brand new role. So what was it like to be one of the first first ladies? And how much has the role changed since? 
Historian Jeannie Abrams of the University of Denver has written a book about Martha Washington, Abigail Adams, and Dolly Madison. And welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Of course, uh, the Americans had just defeated the British in the Revolutionary War. How did that rejection of the monarchy help shape the role of First Lady? I mean, you, you didn't want to come across as too highfalutin, right? Correct. So really what they had to navigate this new role was to try to figure out how to maintain a regal demeanor without a throne or a crown. So everything, ceremonies, clothing, what food they served, all were indicative of the manner that the government was unfo- was unfolding. Interesting. You had to be regal, but you couldn't be too queen-like. And this, as you say, came down to what they wore, where the fabrics they wore came from, and even the kind of chair they sat in. Tell me about that. Well, several things. Let's go back maybe to the fashion first, because I think we don't realize how much um, fashion made a political statement at the time. In England, um, kings and queens um, had ceremonies that had been developed over centuries, and they wore elaborate costumes when King George and Queen Charlotte were coronated. Um, One of the witnesses said that Queen Charlotte wore a jewel-encrusted gown with pearls, for example, as big as cherries. The train of her dress was carried by her lady-in-waiting. A canopy was held over her head by 16 barons. It was made of what they called cloth of gold, gold fibers, and it was a major contrast to what happened in the newly formed United States. George Washington, when he was inaugurated, Um, was dressed in a simple um, brown suit that was manufactured from cloth from Connecticut. Uh, And his wife, Martha, was not even at his side at the time of the inauguration. And when she finally arrived in New York about a month later, she wore an elegant but simple dress and the local newspaper um, reported very, with great admiration that she was clothed in the manufacture of our country. Of that, our country. Right. And, and so this became incredibly political, and these first first ladies really were under the microscope this, this way. Uh, the public gauging whether they were American enough and had separated enough from the monarchy. And there, at one point, the question is raised whether Martha Washington, during a political salon, is sitting in too high a chair if it looks too throne-like. Correct. So she actually um, sat on a platform in a, I guess, a comfortable but not unusual chair. But many people criticized the Washingtons for bringing back monarchy. That was too much like a throne, even though there was really nothing throne-like about it. And Abigail Adams, who hated the press and felt that they were very often very critical and unfair, Um, really shared with her husband her feeling that everything the Washingtons did were really with the best intentions in all innocence. You write about the close friendship that Martha Washington and Abigail Adams formed. uh, We'll talk about that a little bit later. But I think it's really important to understand the role of women in general in the late 1700s in this country, the constraints on them. They really didn't enjoy the full rights of citizens at that point. They did not have legal rights, and um, 
they were not married women, were not allowed to engage in any legal contracts. They couldn't even write wills. So they were um, they were really operating under the laws of coverture, um, really what that, that is means, covered literally by their covered by their husbands, correct. So even though none of the three women would be what we would call feminists today, and um, I think the word actually applying to them is really an anachronism, I think we have to be very careful not to examine the, pra- the past from a presentist type of lens. But um, Abigail certainly um, believed very firmly in education for women, and she also really tried to influence her husband in terms of legal rights for women. I want to talk about their political involvement, because as First Lady Martha Washington, you write, is credited with introducing the country's first political salon. What was a political salon and why were they important? So we're talking about the days before television, radio, um, certainly print is coming into its own, many more newspapers. But the way people interacted was really one-on-one. And the American salons really were an arena for politicians to kind of experiment with their ideas, try to persuade one another to come to their um, side. And in that very fragile new republic where there were very soon great divisions between the main, the main, the only two political parties at the time, the Federalists and the Jeffersonian Republicans, um, trying to establish unity was a goal um, that was often elusive. And it was often a task that the first ladies saw themselves as fulfilling, uh, helping their husbands in this way. Well, uh, several things. I believe that they really felt their job was to burnish the um, reputations of their husbands. I think many of them uh, acted as kind of informal PR agents, um, the something that we have more formally, obviously, today. But I think they saw that these salons and dinners and entertainments were a way to move forward the agendas for their husbands' um, term in office. Which may not be an overtly political act, but is absolutely one with political consequences. Uh, You say the term first lady probably didn't come until much later when Mary Todd Lincoln was in the role. And you note that there's really never been an official mandate for the role of first lady. It's always been something crafted by the woman who holds the position. Uh, Jeannie, as first lady, Martha Washington declared that she felt like a state prisoner. Did did she give any examples or further explanation of why? Well, I want to put that in a little perspective. I think one of the great values of studying history actually is to put current events in perspective. So I think what we see is from the very first, both the president and first lady were under constant public scrutiny. So that was something that Martha did not welcome. Um, She was, when um, Washington was elected, they were both in their late 50s. Um, Being in your late 50s in the 18th century was older than being in your late 50s um, today. She felt that they were destined to hopefully live out their lives in tranquility in Mount Vernon. So first of all, she did not like moving to New York. The capital at the time. Yes, the um, temporary seat of government at the time. And she did not like her social interactions being dictated by the president and cabinet members. And so she wrote her niece and said that she felt often like a state prisoner. That's not unusual um, 
uh, Harry Truman often referred to the White House as the great white prison. Mm -hmm. So probably most um, presidential couples have had very similar outlooks. It seems that this view of the experience of being a first lady is what brings Martha Washington and Abigail Adams closer together. They become uh, quite good friends. Um, But compared to them, Dolly Madison really comes across as larger than life. I mean, you refer to her as a celebrity of her day. What do you think she brought to that still-fledgling office that the others hadn't? Well, Martha was, first of all, an experienced hostess um, who actually knew how to occupy her position. Then Abigail Adams was probably the most intellectual of the three first first ladies. Um, She was a political theorist in her own right. She tussles with the press, often in defense of her husband. Correct. And she really um, is extremely well-read, probably, as one of her contemporaries said, the most knowledgeable woman of her time in terms of politics and um, culture. I understand that you think she'd be president if she were alive today. Yes. I think that if um, women had been allowed to run for office, um, she probably would have been even more popular than her husband, John, who could be a little prickly sometimes. Okay. Um, Abigail certainly had charm, even though she was a very strong-willed woman. But I think um, what... Dolly Madison was able to do was really, she was very politically savvy, and she also had great charisma. And that combination of the two enabled her to really move her husband forward. Madison could be charming in small groups, but he was pretty shy and retiring generally, and she humanized him, and she was probably the key to his political success. It is really uh, Dolly Madison who helps shape early Washington, what became Washington, D.C. She and her husband are really the first administration to install themselves permanently in, I think, what was called Washington Mm -hmm. City back then. I I wasn't aware of how much she shaped the city. You know, I want to note that Um, The first three first ladies don't represent the first three administrations because Thomas Jefferson had been elected as a widower. Correct. And um, even though Thomas Jefferson's daughter Martha occasionally acted as hostess in the White House, it was really Dolly. It wasn't the White House at that time, the president's house. Um, it was really Dolly who experienced her apprenticeship, apprenticeship, so to speak, um, as first lady because um, she was um, very prominent as Madison's wife at the time, and she and Jefferson got along very well. And Jefferson, although, again, a charming, um, brilliant personality, tended to be very informal consciously in the White House. Um, he was the head of the what was then considered um, Demo- Republican Democrats, Democratic Republicans. They hadn't um, arrived versus at their the final versus no. the Federalists. He really emphasized um, the common man and tried to be very informal. Uh, he famously greeted guests in his slippers, um, 
a lot of um, contradictions in personality. He also brought, I think, over 600 bottles of fine wine back from France. Um, so um, there were some things that um, were way beyond the realm of the common man that he um, exhibited. But in any case, um, often um, Dowley would be there to smooth over differences, both in um, Jefferson's administration and in Madison's. In Jefferson's as well. Interesting. And Eugenie, I was fascinated to read in your book that New Jersey gave some women the vote briefly Mm -hmm. in the 1790s. I think it was only for women who were landed. Is that right? Yeah. And then it was quickly taken away. Uh, I want to ask about suffrage and whether Martha Washington, Abigail Adams or Dolly Madison had their eye in some regard on women being able to vote. I think only in a very limited fashion. Again, since um, Abigail Adams certainly was an advocate of legal rights for women, I don't think that she realistically envisioned political rights um, at the time, but I think she thought it might um, really occur down the horizon. She did write her sister about the women in New Jersey who were allowed to vote. Um, She looked at that with admiration. Um, But she also um, really was a woman of her era in many ways. She felt that men and women had very distinct, separate roles. And at one point she wrote, um, all honor is really in following your role to the best of your capacity. But that doesn't mean um, that she also didn't support um, an idea in the future of women voting. What she did believe was that even though women didn't hold the reins of government at her time, she felt that they should have a voice in how the um, journey went forward. Jeannie Abrams of the University of Denver wrote First Ladies of the Republic, Martha Washington, Abigail Adams, Dolly Madison, and the creation of an iconic American role. We spoke in 2018. Abrams also wrote about the health of the country's first first families. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and John Adams all cared deeply about health and medicine. Perhaps it's because they lived at a rather sickly time. Malaria, yellow fever, and smallpox were rampant. Let's hear again from DU historian Jeannie Abrams. She has also written Revolutionary Medicine, the Founding Fathers and Mothers in Sickness and in Health. The Founding Fathers and their families dealt with a lot of sickness, didn't they? Oh, it was extraordinary. Thomas Jefferson, for example, was predeceased by his young wife in her 20s and five of his six children hmm. and even several grandchildren. He, he once wrote um, a friend in Europe that I was born to lose everything that I love. And it was all to disease, which was common. The mortality rate was very, very high at the time. And Jefferson was kind of an extreme example. An extreme example. The the infant mortality rate in particular was very high in, in the fledgling America. For children under two, as high as 40% in the early years. Um, as one historian later noted, maybe about a half century ago, um, it's amazing that America and the United States eventually thrived and that anyone survived those early years. You say medical care around this time was largely done at home, and it was often self-administered. What are some examples? 
Well, all of the founding mothers were quite knowledgeable about using herbs and common uh, medicines at the time to treat family members. Diseases that we would certainly go, um, for our first stop would be to a physician, were first thought about informally. So even cancer, Benjamin Franklin advised his sister who had breast cancer about certain folk treatments that he had heard locally, including putting a wooden cone on the breast to cure the breast cancer. It obviously did nothing, but he said that he had heard um, cases where the people had been cured, but they were struggling. It was really an area of darkness in many ways in terms of medicine, and scientific medicine was really just coming into its own. Abigail Adams, Martha Washington, Dolly Madison all grew medicinal herbs in their gardens. So indeed did Thomas Jefferson. Probably um, one of his major hobbies was growing flowers and plants at Monticello. He probably grew as many as 50 different medicinal plants, used certain plants to treat stomach ailments, and some of them we use to this day. Like what? Well, aspirin. Um, that we use. The ubiquitous and very successful medication aspirin um, is derived from the willow tree. Jefferson, for example, grew lavender in his garden, which was used to treat headaches. There were doctors in this era, but you write that only about 10 percent held medical degrees. Correct. There were no particular rules for becoming a doctor. Most, and there was no licensing at the time. Um, Most physicians really got their training on the job, so to speak, as an apprentice. But only 10% actually went through formal university training. And that wasn't necessarily all bad. Many of those who had gone through formal university training had only really studied theoretical medicine and did not have much hands-on experience. So what did it mean to be a doctor? Well, some of it was experimental, but really the foundation for medical treatment um, in early America was almost universally bleeding. That was taking some bloodletting, blood, blood as we would know it today, taking some blood from the patient um, in an effort to adjust the body's humors. Humors. What are what are humors? So those were considered the four main aspects of the human body, black and yellow bile, blood, and phlegm. And that was what controlled the stability of the body. That there needed to be some balance between all of those uh, energies. And and disease was the result of an imbalance between those four humors. So bloodletting, for example, would be used to remove an excess of one of those humors. Huh. Even though you'd think that uh, bloodletting might release all four of them. But I guess the idea is that magically the bad one comes out. Yes, really um, a lot of those ideas seem counterintuitive to us today, but they were followed from the 4th century um, and the Greek um, physician Galen. Ultimately, George Washington, for example, died of what we would consider today quite a treatable disease, some type of strep throat. His epiglottis was swollen. He basically suffocated. But his death was really hurried on by the fact that he was bled three or four times that last day by his physicians. And his body probably also went into shock, which hastened his death. You describe this as taking out over half of Washington's circulating Mm -hmm. blood, Mm -hmm. over half his blood. Physicians really 
actually had just kind of a guesstimate about how much blood a person held in their body and what was safe. And it it seems counterintuitive to us, um, but they felt that they could regulate um, all diseases. Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was probably the leading American physician in the United States at that time. And who signed the Declaration of Independence. Yes, he was revolutionary um, in his uh, medical practice, I would say, in many areas and certainly in his politics. He felt that all diseases could be cured by bloodletting. Thomas Jefferson didn't buy into bloodletting, though, did he? He was circumspect. No. Thomas Jefferson was a very fervent believer in natural medicine. He really felt that the body had the capability to heal itself if only physicians would leave the people alone. Um, This may be apocryphal, but one of the stories circulating about him was that he used to say, if he saw two or three doctors in conversation, he'd look up in the sky to see if there were any vultures circling. Benjamin Franklin, whom you call the founding father of American medicine, helped start America's first medical school in Philadelphia, which was the capital of the country at the time. And uh, Jeannie, I didn't know this, he also invented several medical devices, the flexible urinary catheter and bifocals. Mm-hmm. Um, why was Benjamin Franklin so interested in health? I suppose there probably wasn't anything he wasn't interested in. That's, if you, that's yeah. correct. And, you know, this whole group of founders were just extraordinarily brilliant people. They were so curious, and they were all very much in, influenced by Enlightenment thought. And um, health and happiness and progress were very much interconnected in their minds. So that is one of the reasons I think that Franklin in particular was so interested in medicine. Medicine was one way that they felt they could really calculate the index of human progress. And of course, these are people very interested in human potential, in the potential of a new nation. Correct. And and that would be linked to the health of the populace. Correct. Little is known at this period about microbes. And there's this general sense that bad air can cause illness. When Benjamin Franklin dies in 1790, it's thought that he fell ill after sleeping with his windows open. Correct. One of the other general theories, along with the bloodletting, was that miasmas, bad air, caused many, many illnesses. Um, For instance, I learned this while I was doing the research, malaria comes from the the Latin mal area, bad air. Oh, air. bad air. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which um, was very interesting to me. So that led to some very ludicrous ideas. Um, for example, during the terrible, notorious 1793 yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia, doctors were very divided on what they thought the causes um, of that outbreak were. Even Dr. Benjamin Rush, the leading physician, as I mentioned, felt that spoiled coffee on the wharves was probably the reason for the outbreak of the yellow fever. And what, that there was something emanating from Mm -hmm, the spoiled? Something emanating from the spoiled coffee. You know, I I think it's also um, really easy to read this book, Revolutionary Medicine, and go, oh, weren't they naive? But if someone writes a book about our medical care today, 50 years from now, they're likely to find some, you know, crazy notions that we hold. Yes, and I, and I think um, we very frequently read stories about medications or treatments today that were considered very successful only to find out 
that they were indeed unhelpful. We know how many drugs have caused um, very serious side effects. Right, you think um, about thalidomide un- or, mm-hmm. D- D- I suppose, DDT, not necessarily a medicine, but... Un- unintended consequences. And it's interesting to me that some of those treatments that we consider especially ludicrous, like bloodletting and leeches, um, actually have come back into their own in a certain way. Um, leeches have been approved by the FDA over the last couple of years as a medical device. Um, they're actually helpful in regenerating blood vessels. And um, bloodletting on a limited basis has also um, helped people with high blood pressure. This book winds up being a, a rather intimate portrait of the founding fathers and mothers. You know, it's their, it's their medical histories. <laughs> Where do you turn to get stuff like this? Well, first of all, they were all such prolific, articulate writers. Um, most of that information is garnered from their letters. Thomas Jefferson alone wrote over 18,000 letters. And they were very detailed, informative letters. And some of the things that we would consider very private, they exchanged um, with one another very regularly. Thank you for being with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for hosting me. University of Denver historian Jeannie Abrams on her book, Revolutionary Medicine, The Founding Fathers and Mothers in Sickness and in Health. We spoke in 2014. Thanks for spending part of your President's Day with us. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News.